Go ahead and grab your Bibles, if you would. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7. We're going to be hitting verses 7 through 12. And while you're getting there, I just want to be really clear and do a little recap of what's just happened prior to Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we've been going through the last 11 weeks. One of the most colorful characters in the Bible, a dude named John the Baptist, what happens is he bursts on the scene and he builds an instant reputation as someone who doesn't care at all what people think about him. What he dresses like, what he eats, or who he offends. And then he proceeds to preach a sermon that is approximately... 39 minutes, 55 seconds shorter and angrier than you will ever hear from me. Which is simply this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what Big John had to say. That was his message. That's what we're told what he preached. Maybe he extended it occasionally. So Johnny, our boy Johnny, is a guy that the Old Testament prophesied would be the opening act for Jesus Christ who then came on the scene shortly afterwards preaching the same message, which in a nutshell was saying, follow me because I'm the forgiver of sins. I'm the promised Messiah. I'm the one that you've been waiting for, not to be your political leader, but to lead you out of the darkness of your sin into life and joy. That was the message of Jesus. Very distinctly, very simply, that was the push. That was the agenda. And John the Baptist just set it up for him. And what happens is that people flocked to Jesus. They believed this message of good news that we call the gospel. They repented of their sins and they became followers of Jesus. And then chapter 5 of Matthew tells us that they go up a mountain with Jesus where he preaches a much longer sermon like the ones you're used to hearing with the content being all about how a follower of Jesus is supposed to live. How were these people supposed to live? How did they know how to live right when they are saved and they become followers and disciples of Jesus? Well, Jesus tells them, he preaches a sermon, he lays it all out. Because eventually, they had to go back down the mountain, didn't they? Eventually, this is a group of people that would not be on the mountaintop forever with Jesus. They had to go back down the mountain. Jesus didn't establish a commune on top of the mountain, right? They didn't build a church building. They didn't record some worship CDs. They didn't make WWJD bracelets, right? They didn't establish a homeschool co-op up on the mountain. That's not what they did. They went back down the mountain eventually to put into practice all that Jesus instructed them to do. So coming to the warehouse for us, in a lot of ways, kind of, is kind of like going up the mountain. With the exception that... Of course, we, we don't have trees, and we're not nearly as eco-friendly since we actually cut down the trees to build our stage. That's a whole other thing if we're getting into the whole mountaintop experience. But here's what's the same, all right? God speaks to us from his word. He equips us once again on Sunday mornings like what he's doing right now by God's grace. Pray for me. He calls us to repentance once again. He encourages you once again. And then we leave the warehouse. We go back down the mountain, so to speak. And every Monday is like going back down the mountain for us. We're supposed to go back down the mountain. We're supposed to go back down to live out the gospel that's living inside of us. To be, what our backdrop here says, to be salt and light. To a world that needs to know about who this Jesus is that we are now following and becoming disciples of. So the question we've been exploring and unpacking over the past 11 weeks 
is how do we live out this new identity that we have? If indeed we have this identity, how do we be salt and light? How do we guard against sinful things like anger and lust and divorce and lying and vindication and hating our enemies? How do we then do godly things like not judging, like asking forgiveness, like being generous, loving the unlovable, giving to the needy, using our money wisely and trusting God to provide what we need so we're not consumed with anxiety and worry like you heard from Jeff, uh, Pastor Jeff a couple weeks ago. Jesus tells us how we ought to live, but he also helps us live how we ought to live. But he wants us to ask him. He wants us to ask him to do it. So the big idea today, the one sentence, the anchor that I'm going to use, and I'm going to keep going back to is simply this. God is a good father who gives generously to those who ask for that which pleases him. Let me repeat that. God is a good father who gives generously to those who ask for that which pleases him. And I'm going to break it down into two points. The first one is going to be this. We ask from a lack. And it's going to lead into my second and final point for the morning, which is, but God gives from his love. So we ask from a lack, but then God comes around and gives from his love. All right, well, let's pick up chapter 7, verse 7. It says this. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. So this word ask is actually a Greek word. And it means to beg or to call for or to crave or to desire or to require. Or to actually seek something hidden. Seek something that we need that we can't see. And so when we look right into it here. Nowhere does Jesus say this. Nowhere does Jesus say, all right, I've told you what to do. Now go figure it out. Go after it. Now what he's saying right here, very simply, is he says, ask. He says, ask me. He drives us back to something. He drives us back to prayer. And what's implied here is that everything he's calling us to do is something we have zero ability to do in and of ourselves. Right? So in other words, if I go to Scott Long... Sorry, brother, I don't know where you are. I'm calling you out. And ask him to check my blood sugar levels for diabetes. I'm asking him to do something that I need a much taller man to do for me. (laughs) Right here in the front row, Zach Watson. Because he's able and he's qualified to do it. So Jesus is saying to be able to accomplish the life of a disciple, you need to ask the one who can equip you to accomplish it. And so Jesus kind of brings us back to that prayer. Remember, we went through in chapter 6, verse 9. He's telling us that we don't have the goods to accomplish the good that he has for us to accomplish. I mean, it's so simple that it feels like I don't even have a sermon to preach to you guys right now. It's so simple. He gives us a command, and then he follows it with a promise. And he uses these three words. He says, ask, seek, and knock. Well, ask for what? What's he asking us to ask for? Well, after his disciples have gotten this far in this sermon, it would have been insane, now follow my logic here, it would have been insane for them to ask for something that wasn't in line with his teaching, wouldn't it? And here's what I mean. If you're sitting three rows back at the top of the mountain with Jesus, 
and he has been warning you, say, against religious hypocrisy, it would seem like, I mean, just call me crazy, but it would seem like you probably want to ask him to reorient your heart against falling prey to that, right? And when God tells you not to worry, when he's saying don't judge, when he's saying not to get angry with your brother, when he's saying not to lust, not to retaliate, not to hate your enemies, it would seem odd to get on your knees and ask for that beach house in Miami, right? You'd want to ask for whatever was necessary to pursue the righteousness that God is calling you to pursue. So he gives us three action words here. He says, ask, seek, and knock. And we think about ask, we think about this idea of actually opening our mouths to God. A physical movement. We go before the Lord and we say, God, I need blank. I need this. I need you. I need these things to equip and to encourage me and to make me more like your son. So it's a physical thing he's asking us to do. And then he uses a word like seek. He's saying search. He's saying open the words that I've given you. Seek the words that I've given you to find the life that I've already put inside you that you need to start living out. So he's saying seek, search my words. Go after my word. And then he says, knock. And what we get from a word like knock is that we need to humble ourselves before the Lord. We need to come before him and we need to allow him to pull us in to what it is that he wants to say and do and grow and produce in our lives. Especially during those times where he's making us wait. So he's asking us to ask, to seek, and to knock. Jesus is instructing us to ask from our lack. From our lack. And then he does something interesting, that he contrasts this to how our kids ask us from their lack. Let's go to verse 11. And he says, uh, and he says this, I'm sorry, verse 9. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, he says, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him. So ironically, Jesus creates a contrast for us by giving us both meat and vegan options here with how he talks about food, right? You know, Jesus didn't miss a trick even 2,000 years ago. He says, look at what happens when your kids come to you. Let me give you an example here that's going to make sense to you. Number one, you will not deny their basic needs. If they're hungry, you will give them the food that they need. If they ask you for some mac and cheese, you're not going to drop a bag of marbles on their plate and tell them to finish every bite or there's no dessert in Netflix after dinner. That's not what you're going to do. Remember the Lord's Prayer from chapter 6. God calls us to pray for what? For our daily bread. Because he knows we need food to live. And he knows that because he created us to need food to live. He didn't provide a digestive system if we never had any reason to use it. So this is just common logic that he's giving us. And then he goes a little bit deeper with the second part of the verse. And this is what I like. He says, if your kids want some fish, you're not going to drop a snake on their plate, right? That actually might be kind of funny, actually, when I was thinking about this. But nine times out of ten, you probably wouldn't give them something harmful, dangerous, or detrimental to them unless you try to covertly drop some veggies on the plate. And we all know how that goes most of the time. But what Jesus is doing is he's drawing a parallel here between the heart of a parent and the heart of God who is our parent. Right? 
And here's what I love. Here's what I love about how Jesus communicates to us. He's not passive aggressive. He's not like us. He looks at this crowd of disciples who just followed him up a mountain and calls them evil. I mean, you got to appreciate that. Nowhere in this sermon do we see Jesus saying, you know, in case you forgot how awesome you are, let me just tell you how honored I am to be in your presence and for the privilege I have of preaching to you. I mean, he very calmly says, even though the intent of your hearts are evil from your youth, he's kind of getting at what Genesis chapter 8 tells us, um, because of this corrupted sin nature that you inherited from Adam, even you still know how to give your children good gifts. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if we had a contest to determine the worst parents here on the mountain, and you won, he said, even you would give your kids something to eat when they told you they were starving to death and using that nonsensical hyperbole. That's what he's saying right there. And what this does is it absolutely drives a stake to the center of the fallacies we construct about God as a father. Because we think when we ask for bread, he's going to care so little for us that he won't give us even the minimum of what we need to sustain us. It's like the great pumpkin that you guys all just watched last week when Charlie Brown goes trick-or-treating and always gets what? A bag full of rocks. That's what we think. We think we go before God, we have it out. He's not going to throw in the good stuff. He's going to throw in rocks for us. He doesn't care about us to that degree, to, to that level. We misappropriate the character of God. Not only that, but we are also so distrusting that we believe he'll actually give us something to harm us instead. That's how far our unbelief and our suspicion goes in regards to God's character and what we believe about what he wants to do and wants to supply for us and for our needs. And let me take a minute here to say this. Maybe there's some warrant for that belief in your life. Maybe you had a father or a parent that was the worst, that neglected you, who failed to provide for you, and worse than that, actually did harm to you. You had an old man who abandoned you, who abused you. And for you, the thought of a father who lovingly provides for your needs is almost unfathomable. Almost unfathomable. Let me just say that you were in no different company than many of the disciples on the mountain that day. And that God's grace has the power to heal the brokenness that has abounded in your life due to a father that absolutely failed you. Psalm 68 says that God is a father of the fatherless and protector of widows. This is God in his holy habitation. And then he says God settles the solitary in a home. He has a place for you with him. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. So God has a future for you that includes him as a loving, caring father that he will give you eyes for, to realize and see as you grow in his love and in his care. And he most specifically and clearly does that through your brothers and sisters in the church who will surround you, who will love you. That's why we do community groups here at this church. Because we all have backgrounds where we come in to scenarios where we need to feel the love and the support of our Heavenly Father. And we feel it most, most completely when we're with other people that share the same Heavenly Father as we do. 
You guys hear me on that? Going to God is how we learn what goodness is. It's how we're reminded of our constant need for him and his constant provision for our necessities and what those necessities actually are. I mean, I'll be honest. I I didn't really know what good food was until I met my wife because she knew how to prepare and provide good food for our fam. So my definition of good food was based on my experience I had with subpar food, and then I met this woman right here. So we ask from our lack. And then here's our second part, which is God gives from his love. Let me read verse 11, the last half of 11. He says this, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, this is the part we're hitting on, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who asks him? So Jesus appeals to some common logic. If parents like you, who are the worst, I'm trying to be kinder than him, can give gifts to your children that are good enough to cover their most basic needs, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask? Now look closely at what it says. It does not say God will give us more things. That's not what it's saying. When good parents spend a lifetime giving their kids more and more things, they eventually slide themselves out of the good parent category. That's what happens with that. A good parent gives their kids what they need while at the same time taking joy and occasionally blessing them with things they want. I should have gotten an amen after that one. I mean, Jesus is talking here about intent. The words how much more refer to God's intent and his ability to give good things, which include both necessities and at times even niceties to those who ask him. James has this great verse, the book of James says, Every good gift and perfect gift is, is from above, he says, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, is what he says. So there's a boundless reliability to God's goodness where we have confidence that good things come from God and they will continue to come from him because his goodness, it doesn't change. His goodness doesn't change. He's not moody. Man, I've had a week where I've just been moody all week. Don't talk to my wife. I've been moody all week. God's not moody. He gives based on his character, not ours. You guys understand that? God gives to us based on him, not us. If he gave things based on us, I need another 55 minutes to preach another sermon about that. But he gives based on his character. He doesn't have days where he's lazy. He doesn't have days where he's grumpy. He doesn't have days that he's frugal or indecisive or mean or stingy. He doesn't have days like that. He's not like us. He doesn't change. His goodness is abounding, it's everlasting, it's a level line through our life. Isn't that great for us to think of it like that? But I think this calls into question two things for us as we think about this. Number one, I think it causes one of the things we struggle with being self-belief. This calls self-belief into question. We question God's character. We question God's character. We put him in a category of men who have given us stones and serpents. I don't ask God for things because I don't think he wants for me what I want for me, is what we say. So 
I ask for some things, but try to take care of most things myself. So our belief in God to give us good things is based on our experience with others. So we adopt this attitude that says, I have to love myself, I have to believe in myself, because nobody else is going to do that. And if they do, someday they're going to fail me. So what happens is with us is we slide into self-belief because really what it is is disbelief in the goodness of our Father. And the second thing is we slide into suspicion, don't we? We become suspicious of God's character. We think if God doesn't give immediate results, it calls his goodness into question. We believe somehow God should have the same timeline as us. Because, you know, we always get those timeline things really right, don't we? But we believe God should have the same timeline as us. And when he doesn't sync up his eye calendar to ours, all right, it can only mean one thing, and that he's conspiring against us. That he doesn't have our best in mind and our good in mind. So when I lived in California years ago, I I sat on the freeways for hours. Thank you, Lord, for Ohio. All right? Every day, I saw my life flash before my eyes on the I-5 freeway. That's right. I said, the five. The I-5 freeway. Then I moved to Ohio, a place where traffic hasn't even been invented yet. (laughs) So last week, I'm going out. I turn right onto Main Street, and it's backed up like three blocks And the first words out of my mouth were, this is outrageous. (laughs) It literally felt like Ashland, the town, including all of you, were conspiring against me. That's how it felt. That's how outraged I was. I won't tell you what I did after that. So what happens, though, is that we become suspicious of God. We think he's conspiring against us when we think he's not delivering the goods in our lives, right? But here's what's happening. When we ask God, God actually starts working immediately. Do you know that? Do you know when you ask God for something, that work starts immediately? And that immediate work that he starts in us, listen carefully. That immediate work that he starts in us is called waiting. That's the work he starts in us typically when we ask him for something, which is to wait. That's how he starts giving us what we ask for. It's how God equips us and empowers us with his character. I mean, making our kids wait is one of the good things that we give them, isn't it? Wait. Be patient. It's not the right time. So our relationship to God should never be one of suspicion. We ask expectantly because we expect him to be good. When we don't ask, it's because we've made God into our own image because we suspect that he's not good. I mean, we remember the golden calf incident, right? With Moses and the children of Israel, that shining moment in the life of the Israelites. They didn't believe God was doing good, so they stopped asking him for things. Their unbelief and their immaturity resulted in them having a a dance party with a golden cow that they blew their life savings on. That's what happened that day. Right? All these dudes coming together, throwing their life savings, melting a thing of gold, and then creating this golden calf, and then they had a rave that night. Like, that's what they did because they decided against God's character. They made a decision that what God had for them, it wasn't all there. It wasn't what it was cracked up to be. 
They were suspicious. They were distrustful. If you're not asking God, you're still getting your answers from someone or something else, aren't you? Because if you're not asking God, you're asking somebody or something, whether it's yourself or somebody else that is far less reliable and far less out for the ultimate goodness in your life. Who is that? If you're not asking God, who are you asking? Because it's not neutral in your life. It's not a neutral thing in any of our lives. We are going after someone or something to get the things that we think we need. And this gets to our final verse, because when you don't ask God for what you need, here's the irony, and this affects all of us in this room, you won't have what you need to treat others like God treats you. You won't have what you need. And don't think it's anything less than that. Our treatment of others is, dr- is directly related to how God, how good we think God is. Let me say that again, because I just tongue-twisted myself to death. Our treatment of others is directly related to how good we think God is. So this is when we dive into this old thing we call the golden rule. Let's pick up with that. It's verse 12. And he says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So remember, we learned a little bit about the law early on in this sermon series, the law and the prophets, how Jesus said, Hey, I didn't come to do away with the law that I gave Moses. I came to fulfill it. And what he's telling us now is this way that we treat other people based on how God has treated us and continues to do in our life. It's a fulfillment of the law. Whatever you wish done to you, do to others. He's inviting us into this. And this is the larger meaning and intention of the law that we've been learning about. It's not simply as a way to to get what we give. But because this is what Jesus asks of his followers in keeping the spirit of the law and avoiding religious hypocrisy like the Pharisees. So now we have the freedom to treat others in the same way that we hope to be treated without expecting anything in return. Because our return comes from the way that God treats us, which is good all the time. God is good. God is good all the time. So it's something that happens in us and extends out of us to our brothers and sisters. So here are some of the implications of this passage. What Jesus has done is remind us of God's character once again, of the good and the fatherly character of God, who lovingly gives us what we need when we ask for our lack of it. How could a God who gave you your greatest need by sacrificing his son not give you what you lack as you sacrifice for him. Look at God's track record in Scripture. Look at the track record that God has in Scripture and ask yourself this question. How do you define the word good? Do you have a good working definition of the word good? Do you feel like you got that one down? You have that written somewhere? Is it written on the mirror when you're getting ready in the morning? If I asked you what the word good meant, what would you be able to tell me? The Bible defines it as the fruit of the Spirit. He defines it as something that he's actually already producing in us after he saves us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. These are the gifts, these are the goodnesses from God, the Father of lights, who doesn't only give us a brand new heart but also supplies himself as the power to keep it running. 
That's what he's getting at here. You ever unwrap a toy when you were a kid that you wanted for Christmas, but they forgot to buy you the batteries? I mean, I still feel like I have scars from that, you know, from, from, from my earlier childhood. That's not God. That's not what God does when he provides for us. He's proven. Because of Jesus, God is proven. Anyone who sacrificed what he sacrificed is proven. Anyone who made creatures that fell into total disrepair, but still know how to care for their own offspring, is totally reliable to care for his own. How do we know? Because God treats us how he treated his own son. He called him to live and to die and to rise again. And he will be just as good to not fail us like he didn't fail his own son. That's the gospel. But he calls us to ask, to seek, to knock. And in every case, we will receive what we need. Not always what we want, but always what we need. And always, always our greatest need, which is the love, strength, and character of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Lord, we're grateful that you've given us such a a simple but profound and powerful word for us to remember and be reminded of your character, that you want us to humble ourselves before you. You want us to ask. You've provided everything we need in Christ. And you're so good that you will continue and not fail to give us what we need, when we need it, including waiting, even during times when it feels like it's almost impossible to endure the season of life we're in. Thank you that we have your promise here that says you will give good things to your children who ask. Lord, we glory in that. We thank you that there is nobody else that can supply us with our needs like you. Everything else is a counterfeit. So Lord, reaffirm this truth in our hearts and in our lives as we come before you now to take communion, to remember our greatest need being filled by Christ on the cross, breaking his body, shedding his blood. Lord, thank you for such a great truth on such a great day for us to remember it, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. I'm going to invite Pastor Jeff Powell up. He's going to lead us through communion and the guys as we sing. As we finish uh, our worship time this morning, I really think it's... uh, such a good connection for us as we share in communion to pause and think about what uh, we've just heard Jesus say. Uh, it's, it's easy to tag communion on at the end of the service and not think about why we're sharing, right? We, we don't want that to be the case. I'm sure we have a lot of different church backgrounds that uh, might be represented here this morning, but as we come to share in communion, I thought of two different things that maybe would be appropriate for us as we prepare to share uh, in communion this morning. First, is maybe in your own heart you need to pause as things are being passed out and uh, maybe you just need to repent 
that uh, you haven't thought of God as being your good father the way you should have. Maybe you've questioned. That's appropriate to repent in your heart. Secondly, I think um, then that should turn us to celebrate and remember the goodness of God to us through Christ. Just a few chapters ahead in um, Matthew, Jesus has the Passover meal with his disciples and he says, this is my body as he passes out the bread, which is broken for you. And then he says, the cup as he passes it out represents his blood, which is the forgiveness of sins. And so this morning, as I sat there and, and I thought of the things that Jesus had been saying, you know, the famous verse that most people know in John three sixteen that God so loved the world that he gave. Maybe let that sink in this morning as we share in communion and think of how good God is in what he has given you. So this morning, we would simply ask if uh, you've repented, if you're in the family of God, you're a follower of Christ, we have open communion, share with us. If you haven't, just simply pass that on by. No one will look down upon you. Uh, when we share in communion, it does not save you. We celebrate because God has chose to save us and sent Christ. And so that's what's happening. So I'm going to ask the ushers to come up. And as they pass those out, I'd ask that you just hold and we'll share together after uh, the bread and the cup have been uh, all handed out.
again. I remember blood was shed, body broken, son of man, for joy before him on the cross, so that we pray. Father, we come this morning in recognition of your great love for us on display through Christ and what was done on the cross. You tell us in your word that we are to celebrate the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ until Christ comes again. So we do that this morning. And as we share this communion this morning, be encouraged and challenged to live and trust you more fully. In Christ's name, amen. Good. Let's stand, let's stand. 